So yesterday we spoke about the Benini who has not davened, has not engaged in prayer. And again, obviously they, they, they fulfill their halachic obligations of saying the appropriate parts of the sitter, being mindful of the meaning of the words that they're saying, etc., etc., etc. But they have not engaged in that deep contemplation that brings them to a state of genuine passion for Hashem that leaves an imprint in their mind and their heart about the truth of godliness in their own soul. And as such, they are, in fact, conflicted. They feel the animal soul, and that enters the mind, and there's a general sense of consideration, but it's, uh, it's um, obstructed by the godly soul, which also comes down into the good inclination. Right? And we spoke about the idea of the good inclination, evil inclination, on an on a experiential level, these are experienced as desire. Whereas the soul is much more experienced as a kind of an awareness. Right? And to being conflicted means to be conflicted both in your desires and in your awareness. Because if you're only conflicted in your awareness, but you only have one desire, well then you just do what you desire. And if you're conflicted in your desires, but not conflicted in your awareness, the desires will realign themselves according to what you're aware of, because the nature of a person is that the mind governs the heart. Right? And again, the assistance that we get from Hashem is that illumination, that, that clarity, which is not a permanent clarity, but a, a momentary clarity of what is real, what is true. In other words, the person is aware of the godly perspective from their own soul. And that enables them to make the choice. Um, one other thing that we didn't really speak about, which is I wanted to talk about this idea of the verdict follows the arbiter. right? Um, this analogy of the idea of an arbiter. So... In halacha, there is a notion of being a machria, being an arbiter between things. Um, so if you have a dispute um, in, in halacha between different rabbis of equal caliber, the, if one of those views is viewed as the machria, the arbiter, then the halacha generally follows them. Now, what does it mean to be an arbiter? No, because this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this follows from some of the stuff we said yesterday, but I want to spell it out on its own right because I think it's an important message in and of itself, and I think it will help reinforce the real difference between um, the Bainani and the Russia. Okay. If you have one rabbi that says something is forbidden, another rabbi says it's, it's the same thing is permitted, so you have two opinions. That's simple enough, right? If you bring a third rabbi into the mix, I mean, either he holds that that specific activity is forbidden or it's permitted, right? One or the other, right? So therefore, he's just siding with one of the other two parties. So is that in a case of what's called in Hebrew, hachra, arbitration, as our translator uses? Or is this an example of what's called hiskabrus, overcoming, overpowering? If you have two against one, so you have, it's just the two are stronger than the one. That's not, so we're, 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 that's not the idea of, of, of an arbiter. What is an arbiter? An arbiter is somebody who stands removed from the two positions and is able to determine which of those two positions should be followed. Does that make sense? Like, um, in, in, in halacha, there's something, there's something called binding arbitration, which I think also other secular legal systems have as well. The idea is that there's a law. The law is whether you have to owe someone or you don't owe somebody money. 
But for any number of reasons, it could be that people don't want to go to an actual court case and follow the law, so they go to arbitration. Binding arbitration means that there is a um, disinterested third party. They hear both sides of the issue, and what do they do? They decide what should be done. Not based on a principle of law, but given everybody's considerations, they think this would be the most equitable solution to the problem. Okay. There's in fact even a tradition that we have that the reason the Second Temple was destroyed is that people did not do this. Um, this is something that's called a pshara, a compromise um, in Hebrew. But the, the, the idea that, that um, it's not that they're siding with one person over the other. They're looking at the issue holistically and thinking of like what is the best situation. So again, going back to the example of Allah, if you have one rabbi that says one thing, one rabbi says another thing, what makes a third rabbi an arbiter is that he actually doesn't side with either rabbi. Now, how say he doesn't side with the other rabbis? I mean, either he says it's permitted or it's forbidden. So for this, we have to understand that, there, that there's a rationale behind a ruling. So Rabbi A says something is forbidden and his reason is X. Rabbi B says it's permitted and his reason is Y. Then Rabbi C comes along and Rabbi C says, well, this question about X versus Y, this is like a very serious issue. But have you considered Z? And once you consider Z, the question about your two things, it kind of falls away. By introducing this other issue, it renders the initial dispute um, more straightforward. So let's give an example in a, in, a, in a kind of a concrete way, not with halacha, but with psychology. So we have what's called a, a trait in, in chesed, called chesed. Chesed is the innate desire that human beings have to give, to share. Not because we necessarily like the person, just the, the innate desire to give and to share. Okay. So, um, for instance, have you ever, like, something good happened, you want to celebrate with your friends? Right, so you, like, take everyone out to dinner? You're not being nice, per se. It's not an issue of being nice, but you have some goodness you want to share, right? Or a person's a wealthy philanthropist, they want to donate lots of money so that they can do lots of good. Um, or you love somebody, you like them, you care about them, and you want to show them, so you give them a gift, right? There's many different ways chesed comes out, but it always has this quality of you don't want to keep stuff for yourself. You want to spread it out. Okay? Then there's something called gvura, which is the tendency to hold things for yourself. Would you like your um, private information made public? Why not? Is it A, because it could lead to negative things, or B, that itself is negative? It leads to negative things? In other words, if, in other words if, you're, if your private information is made public, and all that happens is people know about it, they read all about your private information, but they don't do anything, they don't act on that, would you say that then no harm has been done? Or is the, right, or is the publicizing of your privacy in and of itself a kind of a violation? Right? You see what I'm saying? So there's a sense that when you value something, you want to withhold it. You want to protect it. You want to take care of it. So um, why is it that, you know, for instance, um, Hasidus says that um, women tend to be more gvura and men tend to be more chesed. Now, that can sometimes be interpreted that men are nicer and women are harsher. Um, but that not necessarily really what it means. Imagine 
your teenager comes home and says, I want to go with some friends on an outing, unsupervised by any adults. Which parent, statistically, is more likely to say, well, that sounds like a reasonable thing to do. <laughs> like, you know, you're not five anymore. You might as well learn the way the world works. Versus which parent's like, you could get hurt. Something might happen. You should need adult supervision, right? In other words, there's a sense at which that the, the protectiveness is really about Gevura. Because Gevura, the withholding, is not necessarily a spiteful thing. It's simply that out of the value and care you have for things, you don't necessarily want them so exposed. So the protectiveness, the kind of maternal care of a mother is kind of associated more with Gevura. Okay? Does that make sense? So you just get to the feel. Okay, now there's something called Rachamim. Rachamim is called, Rachamim is compassion. So now let's say you're walking down the street and this is an overly um, simplistic analogy to illustrate the point. You're walking down the street and there's a person and the person is poor and they're asking for money. Now, if the chesed in you is aroused, you're going to feel like you want to give them some money. Right? After all, you have money. Why should they not have money, right? right? On the other hand, if your gavur is aroused, you wouldn't want to give them money. Now, why wouldn't you want to give them the money? You value the money, right? Or are you like, what are they going to use it for? Or what are they going to use it for, right? But there's some kind of a value that's saying, like, well, I mean, maybe this is a waste of my money. Maybe this could harm them, right? There's a lot of, right? Right? right. Um, just to go back a second. You ever know that some, like, have you ever had the experience like sometimes you get money and you feel the urge to like spend it and do stuff with it? And sometimes you get the money and you're like, you want to hold on to it? So that's the chesed gavur dynamic at play, okay? So you can feel that in reference to this, this particular situation. Now, which one do you end up doing? Spending. <laughs> do you end up, no, 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 spending. You're walking down the street and this poor person and they're asking for money and you feel both. You feel your chesed aroused and your gavur aroused. You feel this urge to give them, to share, right? On the other hand, you feel like, well, it's my money. They don't really earn it. What, what are they going to do with it, right? So which one do you do? Do you give them money or you don't give them money? Okay, so what you've done is you've compromised, right? Mm, you buy them a sandwich. Oh, so I'm going to talk about the buying the sandwich thing before that. So one thing you could do is you could either give them money because the chesed is overpowering. You could give them the gavur. You could not give them money because the gavur is overpowering. Or you come to a situation where nobody's really happy, but like you can't walk away and not give them anything because you're chesed. But you can't give them like some money that you know is like, really giving them money because you're gavura, and you can't just sit there and do nothing the rest of your life. So you kind of find a way of like. You know, doing a little bit so everybody's happy and walking away. But that's, that, that, it, it's, neither instinct is really fulfilled, but nothing is really so bad and you could kind of move on in life. But then there's a third possibility, which is a total shift away from the question of what you want to do. This person is asking for money. Why are they asking for money? Okay, so let's go with that as the analogy, Okay. They're going because they, they don't have money and they, don't have, they can't buy things that they need. And one of the things that they need is food, right? So you can. But now notice how we've shifted the focus from what you feel a desire to do to what they need. And once we bring that into the equation, what does that do to the desires of giving versus withholding? 
does it side with one over the other or kind of renders their dispute a little bit meaningless? Right? And so you're not even, it's like, okay, if the question is what I feel like doing, do I want to give, do I not want to give, like, that's not the question. The question is, there's a person, they're destitute, they're hungry, they need to eat. Like, that's the issue. And bringing that into it, the, the both, the, the, the person is able to wholeheartedly do something rather than if you just give them a little bit of money or give them a lot of money or don't give them any money where one part has to override or compromise with the other. So now if in halacha you were to have, one rabbi says X is forbidden and one rabbi says X is permitted. Rabbi A says because, the first rabbi says because this is my reasoning. The, rabbi, the second rabbi says this is my reasoning. The third rabbi says, yeah, yeah. That, all well and good, but have you considered this other thing? And once you bring that other thing into consideration, it turns out that that issue that you were debating is not really the relevant factor. In other words, yes, Rabbi A, you have a point. Yes, Rabbi B, you have a point. But both of you are kind of, on a certain sense, missing the point. Okay? So a machria, on the one hand, legitimizes both points of view and also renders them somewhat irrelevant by introducing something that is more significant. Does that make sense? It's a different, it's a different mindset. Okay, so now let's imagine you have a basin. Because remember, we have this example of like three judges, right? You have three judges. Yeah? One judge says, it has to be a monetary issue because in, in, in uh, could not be a monetary issue. I guess it could have lashes. But one rabbi, one judge says, you owe the money. The other judge says, you don't owe the money. Okay? The third judge says, you don't owe the money. What is, the third judge is not simply making it a case of two versus one. There's a halacha, and the halacha is that in a court of law, in a court of law, the halacha follows who? The majority. The majority. Okay. So, what if we only have two judges and they both say that you don't have to pay the money? Is that a valid based in? I want you to think about two things. On the one hand, we just said that if one judge says you have to pay the money, two judges say you don't have to pay the money, the halacha follows the majority, right? So we're following the two judges. What if we just had a basin of two judges and the two judges rule you don't have to pay the money? Is that a valid ruling? Why not? Because it's possible that they were both missing. No, no. I mean, even if you had a third judge and the third judge disagreed with them, in the end the halacha would follow them, right? Like, what do I care? I've got, you know, the first judge says you don't have to pay the money. Second judge says you don't have to pay the money. I don't even need, I don't need the third judge because whatever the third judge says is not going to change the fact. The fact is the halacha follows the majority. I have two judges. They say you don't owe the money. Discussion over. I don't need the third judge, right? The halacha is that a binding ruling requires how many judges? Three. So much so that if two judges sign it, sign like a court ruling in halacha, and for whatever reason the third judge couldn't sign it because he wasn't there, they have to actually write. There were three of us, but for whatever reason the third one can't actually sign. Because if you only have two signatures... What does that mean? It's a valid. No, it's the power of the base and the power of the court is that a panel of three judges is sitting there. So now here's the interesting question. If you were to ask that dissenting judge what the halacha is, do you owe the money or you don't owe the money? He said you owe the money, right? The other two judges say you don't owe the money. Now you ask him, okay, given that there's two judges that say I don't owe the money, one judge says that I do owe the money, 
judge who says I do owe the money, do I actually owe the money? What would he say? Say, no, the halacha, this based has ruled that you don't owe the money. In other words, if you were to ask him what the halacha is, he would tell you that the halacha is like who? Like the other That's the simple way of reading it. But the reading he would tell you is the halacha is like this based and this based has ruled that you don't owe the money. Because there's a principle of the based There's a principle that when you have a panel of judges, the halacha follows the Majority. And once that's the case, all three judges are in agreement that the halacha in practice is like what the Bastin says, right? So by introducing a third judge, you move it from one, from two rabbis, each with individual opinions, and now you've created a new entity called a Bastin, a court. And that's also why if you just have two judges who agree, that's not binding. You need to have the third judge. And if the third judge comes, he dissents, and by dissenting, he makes the opinion more valid. How does he make the opinion more valid? Because now that, now that it's three judges, we've introduced a new factor, which is it's not individual people making a decision. It's, it's a based okay? there's a, right? There's a rule right? that every party of the, everybody agrees with that the lacha follows the based And a based is comprised of three members. And a based rule is based on a majority of its members. Once you introduce that into the issue, all three judges are going to agree that in practice the lacha follows one view. Even though if you ask them individually, they would say that the lacha does not, that they, they disagree with each other. Okay. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. What if the two, if all three judges agree, then what's, then, what's then, the value in adding a third? There's an, in, there's an interesting question why Basin needs to have three. Um, I don't want to go into because it's not really pertinent for our thing. I just want to bring up the idea is that it's not, in those, you shouldn't think of when he says that, the, that the, the third judge, he's siding with one over the other, that it's like one side overpowering the other. That's not really what's happening. By introducing a third judge, what are you doing? You're creating a new reality called the Basin, and the Halachas of Basin follows the majority. And now even the dissenting judge will agree that the Allah should not follow what he thinks, but rather what his colleagues think. Okay. Right. So we've introduced this new factor. Okay. Now, does that mean he's genuinely, though, changed his mind? In other words, if he were to sit on the basin with the exact same case, and it happens to be in the next case, is he going to rule like the previous based in rule? No, his, his understanding of the issue hasn't changed. He is agreeing though that his understanding of the issue has been rendered irrelevant by the fact that there is a based in. You see what's happened? It's, it's, he is submitting to the authority of the based in that he is part of and issuing his, and so he will sign the ruling that he actually disagrees with the legal reasoning of. Right? In fact, in halacha, you're really not supposed to have, if you have a based in, you're not supposed to, like in the Supreme Court, they publish dissenting views. You're not really supposed to do that in Basin. You're not supposed to reveal what the deliberations were once the Basin has issued their ruling. The Basin should issue a unanimous ruling, even though in the privacy of their deliberations, they didn't all agree, but they follow whatever the majority is. Why, why shouldn't they publish it? It undermines the authority. I mean, it's the simple reason. All right, so now let's go back to, we have the animal, we have, we have, we have our Yetzirah and our Yetzirah and they're pretty conflicted, right? How is this problem being resolved? Is by strengthening the awareness of the godly soul. So remember I went back, I gave you that analogy yesterday. If you have 
Like if you know absolutely that the cheesecake is gonna kill you. Yeah. The part of you that wants to eat the cheesecake, will it agree that you shouldn't eat the cheesecake? Yeah. The part of you that- Wants to eat the cheesecake. Yeah. Will it agree that you shouldn't eat the cheesecake? It's not going to stop wanting it. It would like it to be the case that it wouldn't kill you. But as long as it's going to kill you, that part of you will agree that... Right? It's kind of like that dissenting judge who disagrees with his two colleagues, but agrees that Allah follows his colleagues. Right? So what happens when Hashem brings in that awareness? It, it doesn't, it's not that the side of godliness overpowers the Yitzhahara. But it's more like the Yitzhahara, at least at that moment, concedes that we should follow the view of the Yitzhahara. Now, again, just like that judge. The judge thinks that you really do owe the money, right? But he also thinks the Lacha follows the majority of the Basin. And therefore, as a member of that Basin, he will rule that you should not have to pay the money because the majority of the basin ruled that way, right? So he is deferring to the greater authority, right? He is not being overpowered. This description here, is the Yetzirah being overpowered by Hashem's help? No, it's just been made clear. Right, the, what's happening is the, the Yetzirah is deferring. Now, this is the, the so what, what is this like an actual experience? So, so, are there things that you want, but you can let go of the wanting? Yeah. Now, when you let go of the wanting, you let go of the wanting, it doesn't, like, if you could keep the wanting and have it, that would be great, but you can't, so you can just let go, right? So, like the cheesecake example, right? The person really wants to eat the cheesecake, but... It'll kill them, so they can let go of wanting the cheesecake. But now, if magically, like, it won't kill them anymore, like, they're all for the cheesecake. It haven't really stopped deep down desiring the cheesecake, right? So there's this kind of, of, of submission and deference. It's not really, it's being suppressed. And this is key. When we describe this Bainini, that desire that the animal, of, 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 the, of the evil inclination, the animal soul, right? Is it being suppressed? In some sense, not really. In some sense, the part of the person that wants to do the ungodly thing or say the ungodly word or think the ungodly thought, that part also recognizes that that's inappropriate. It's not a, there's no place for that in my life. And therefore, they don't do it. But is that because deep down they really, that, that part has really changed their view? No, it's because of this this added factor, this added awareness. Okay? It's not like the desire, the, the, the emotions of the, of the Yitzhah Tov are so much stronger than overpowering the desires of the Yitzhah Okay, So if you want to think about it like this, a tzaddik, sorry, not a tzaddik, a, a, a Russia. how does a Russia get themselves not to sin? Because Rishayim can sometimes, you can stop yourself from sinning. Like, you feel tempted to sin, how do you get yourself to stop sinning? What? Yeah. I think the elements and the consequences. 
It's not really what I want. Why is it not really what you want? Okay, you'll be punished in the afterlife. You'll be punished in the afterlife. You'll be disconnected from Hashem. You'll be disconnected from Hashem. What? It won't be fun. It won't be fun. Okay. Um, do these really take away the desire to do the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. No. Not really. If you show that it's just horrible, then it could. Okay, but that's not really how that works, right? <laughs> you can't really do that. Fine, but generally, generally not. So then, if you so the desire to sin doesn't really disappear because of anything you said. So then, how do you not sin? Because it just becomes clear that that's not what should be done. Well, that's the question. Is that always the case, or is sometimes the case that what you do is you just try to make the other you just get more emotionally invested in the other side of it? In other words, like. You're using desire to combat desire. Use the example of punishment, yeah? That's very good. You don't want to sin because you don't want to be punished. You're using the desire not to suffer later to drown out the desire to enjoy the sin now. So it's a desire conflicting with desire. Right? I mean, there is obviously awareness involved, but that's really what it is. It's not, it's not you're desiring it less. Okay. Um, if a person tries to get themselves not just to not sin in a very reactive way, something in a proactive way, they want to get really, they want to really be in a growth-oriented mindset and really grow in their Judaism. They want to get very inspired and very motivated, very engaged. What are they trying to do? They're trying to strengthen the desires of the Yitzhak, the Yitzhak, sorry, to make them much stronger than. Right. So in other words, what's happening is there's a wrestling match between the Yitzhak and the Yitzhak. You're trying to make one side. Stronger. What is this happening to this Bainini? Is he making one side stronger than the other? They're equal, right? One side doesn't overpower the other. And then Hashem comes along and does what? Adds a level of clarity that creates at least temporarily a sense of hachra, a sense that even the Yitzhahara would concede this is not, this is not really what I want. They, they can let go. Now, is that concession a true ultimate concession? No. no, it's like that judge who's dissenting but agrees that the Allah follows his colleagues. And so there is a kind of peace in this. Even though yesterday we were focusing on how much conflict this person has, there is a kind of a peace here that's absent in the life of a, of a Russia because the Russia's approach is, is, is one of, okay, if the Yitzhahara is, is very, really strong, I have to make my Yitzhah Tov even stronger to drown it out. But what this is saying is, no, no, I just have to get to a place where Hashem will, give me, will, will help me have that clarity. And it, as long as I have that clarity, what happens? Even the Yetzirah will agree that I shouldn't act on its desires. And so it actually feels like a kind of liberation. When the, when the help of Hashem comes, the way it's described here, it feels like the person, the person feels liberated from the Eight Sahara. Not that they don't feel like they have, they've defeated the Eight Sahara. 
I mean, in behavior, they've defeated it, but it's not experiential. Like, yes, I've overcome it. Like, it's not. It's not like that. It's. It's. It has a kind of a quality similar to what we spoke about the Beni after davening. You see what I'm saying? Like, it, 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 because otherwise, what you're what you're what you're doing is you're, you're, the, the person is constantly in in, in in a in a in a state of aggressiveness within themselves. Like sometimes people go, approach being religious this way. It's like you have you have temptation, the desire to sin. You have this this negative side to you, right? And you have to be vigilant and fight against it. And, and so your whole the whole religious experience becomes one of battle, not in the sense of the notion of battle as like a tactical thing or a strategic thing, which is how it's understood in Tanya, but in the sense of just aggress like an inner aggressiveness. And that's not what we're describing. Here. We're describing the person is has enough maturity and enough desire to grow in Hashem that at least they feel genuinely conflicted. And they're receiving that clarity from Hashem that frees them from the conflict, that frees them from the temptation in the moment. And so even the Yetzirah, it feels like even the Yetzirah agrees that given the reality, no, I shouldn't say just like the judge, just like that judge says, given the reality that, that there's a base and that the majority has ruled against me, I would agree, don't listen to me, listen to my colleagues. But is that, that's not a true transformation, right? You know, the minute that clarity goes away, the Yitzhar is gonna to want to sin again, right? Nothing's changed. The minute, just that judge, the minute they sit in another base, and they're, they're not going to automatically agree with, it, with their colleagues, they're gonna still hold true to what they think makes most legal sense. Right? In that sense, again, going back to the example of how like rachamim, compassion, when you feel a rachamim, a compassion for the person, meaning you're being attuned to what they need, the question of whether you are inclined to share or you're inclined to withhold becomes almost irrelevant. Like you become free of that internal tension because you're now in touch with something else that renders that somewhat irrelevant. Okay? So there's a, there's a sense of being more elevated so whereas the Bainani who's Davin is, is living in a kind of elevated state to begin with, this person is being brought to that elevated state in a moment of crisis, but it, it does feel like a, a, like, a, a, like a personal redemption. Which now is an indication if that's not, it doesn't have, if, if, if overcoming the Atzara doesn't have that quality, are we really engaging what's being described here? You know, or, or are we still kind of stuck in the Russian modality that really the Yetzirah is calling the shots. The very fact that you, you have to fight the Yetzirah in its terms is an indication, right? That, that, that it's, it's really, on some level, it, it's, it's in control. It's setting the battleground. It's setting the stage of how things have to work. And very often we slip into that kind of thing. We don't look for clarity to free ourselves from the Yetzirah. We look for something that can, you know, battle the Yetzirah punch for punch. And that's in the good side. The, 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 there's also an, an one other negative consequence of this. What if you can't, what if you don't, if you're not approaching it this way of like trying to at least come to a point of clarity with Hashem's help, rather like battle good desires against evil desires, and you cannot get your good desires to be stronger than your evil desires, what would be the next strategy then? If you're fighting somebody, right, and you're not stronger than them. Take it onto your turf, on your terms, and change the 
No, you're not like, like, like you're, you're, just, you're, you're fighting them and you're not stronger than them. Give up. You cheat. Okay, and one of the ways of cheating them is to handicap them. <laughs> and this becomes a, this becomes no this becomes this becomes a, 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 a common thing that people do religiously. In other words, if I can't get my Yitzhah Tov to be stronger than my Yitzhahara, well then maybe I should start just weakening the Yitzhahara. Mm-hmm. What are things that strengthen the Yitzhahara? Sitting. Yes, obviously. But there are other things that also strengthen the Yitzhahara. Like doing regular everyday things? Yeah, being a human being. As we're going to learn. What? They strengthen the Yitzhahara. Just being a human being? Yes. Because the, the, remember, the, 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 the Sahara is the thing that makes you want to go away from Hashem. And the world is full of all sorts of things who seem to be meaningful and important and good, independent of whether or not they connect you to Hashem. And so the more you get, the more you kind of derive value from all sorts of regular human things, the more you see life that is not have Hashem at its center as a perfectly, you know, good, reasonable thing, valuable thing, nice thing. And so there becomes this idea, and it exists in many Jewish communities, and, and, of trying to deprive and shut oneself out from as much as possible from the world with the express goal of Weakening the Yitzhara. This can take extreme things such as depriving yourself of, of food, um, physical comfort. There's also things, but the idea is the more you deprive a person of a pleasant existence in this world, the Yitzhara can become weaker. And if the Yitzhara is sufficiently weak, then maybe your Yitzhara will be able to overcome it. So I want you to think there's kind of like three ways to kind of view the battle of the Yitzhahara Yitzhah Tov. Okay? I'm going to work from the bottom, like the lowest way, and then work over. The lowest way is to try and handicap to undermine the Yitzhahara. And I, I, what I'm, I also want to point out, I'm talking here about it like on a strategic level. You guys know the notion of a strategic level? Strategic level means that's your overall plan. There's also the tactical level, which is like how you deal with a particular circumstance, right? But like, so what is the overall way to deal with the Yitzhahara? is to undermine it. How do you undermine it? Abstain from the world. Abstain from the world. Find the, like literally engage with human needs to the barest of minimums. Mm-hmm. Um, can I tell you an extreme story? Okay. Now, the story is usually meant to express something else. Um, but... There was a the Balshemto went to um, used to go around asking people um, how things are going in life. You know, how how's your health? How are your children? How's your parnasa? To get them to say Baruch Hashem. So one time the Balshemto went to what's called a parsha. Parsha is an ascetic of someone who like deprived himself of everything. And this part, she had a certain section of the local base medrash, like in an attic, it was just his place. And he would sit there and he would learn all day. He didn't go home at night. 
probably went home Friday nights and that's it. He had cotton in his ear. He had like, like, like literally like as much sensory deprivation as possible. He didn't speak to anybody unless they were going to talk to him about Torah things. And that's how he lived his life. The Balshamda, sorry, the Balshamda was over to him and, and asks him, how's Parnassa? How's this? How's that? And the guy gets very upset. And, and eventually he says, like, why are you wasting my time? And the Balshamda says, why are you depriving Hashem of his livelihood? That praising Hashem for physical things, so to speak, and nourishes Hashem. It's brought, I don't want to talk about that idea. I don't know there's this story. Now you hear this story, like that guy's a little bit nuts, right? That wasn't nuts. That was very often considered to be an ideal. That, that. And if you're not living that ideal, well, maybe that's because you can't handle it. Okay? But, and throughout different eras in Jewish history, different communities and have had this approach that people in general, and certainly those who want, really want to excel in their religiosity, the main focus needs to be abstaining and depriving yourself of anything that feeds your comfort with an existence which is not godly. Food, family relations, money, even social position, the idea of wandering around anonymously so you don't even get the sense of basic respect that you get from, from being a community member. And the idea is the more and more you deprive yourself, the weaker Yitzhahara is, and therefore it can't put up a good fight against Yitzhahara, and voila, you are a pious, righteous person. Okay, that's, a, the, there's none, there's a different level, which is the opposite, to try and get the desires for good and holy things to be stronger than the desires for evil things. Okay. Now, I, I, that, that is also very difficult because that a person, first of all, there's an aggressiveness and also, it's really hard. The, the Rebbe Yitzhak Radish famously said that, um, you know, it's not fair, Hashem, you put all of the wonder of godliness in books and you put all the wonder of klipa in our actual sensory experience, right? Put the godliness in the, in our, in the world, in our experience, and put the klipa in the books and you'll see how, you know, everybody, every Jew becomes a big tzaddik. So there's something, and, and you run the risk of sometimes engage, getting into like self-loathing or into fantasies about trying to always like maintain that level of enthusiasm and inspiration that your desires for holy things are always stronger than desires for klipa. And then you have what the Alter is describing here, which again, the person is still experiencing conflict, right? We're not the bane after prayer. And yet the attitude is, I just have to get to a point where I can get the clarity to realize that, yes, it's true that I want to be close to Hashem. Yes, it's true that I want to also do klipa. But the actual reality is, is the godly reality. And to have that clarity frees you of the hold of the Sahara for the time being. And that's a very different approach, right? And again, he used the example of judges, right? The judges, it's not the two judges are ganging up on, this, on the third judge, right? That's not what's happening. What's happening is the third judge is following the rule that the halacha follows the majority of his colleagues. The Yitzhahara accepts that if, if the clarity of the godly soul in the moment and therefore foregoes the urgency of its desires. Now, it's not a permanent change. It's a very different thing. So I think it's important to just realize these are three different approaches. One is crippling the Yitzhahara. One is strengthening the Yitzhahara. And the third is bringing in this machria, this third judge, to change the balance of things fundamentally. Yes? Question. What, what are the, the, the lowest level, like breaking the Yitzhahara? Is that coming from Jewish sources? It's a debate. It's a debate. <laughs> 
I mean, those that hold of it very strongly would say, yes, it's a Jewish story. So there are those who criticize it. And I'm oversimplifying, right? You can, you can start blending these different ideas as well, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be all one or all the other. But no, was, there, there is a... Um, the, I, it's not... You don't have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to find sources for this in Talmudic literature. I mean, it's not necessarily that you necessarily have to read those texts, but you could find sort of such things. Um, there's the famous story about Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, who was always ill with these horrific um, like, um, wounds that were just like oozing blood and pus all the time. And I had to constantly have his bed sheets changed and his bandages. And um, his wife was very good about making sure that his bed sheets and stuff were always, you know, being changed. His bandages were always being cleaned. Um, until one night, she heard that he was he, he was inviting all of the like different insects and and worms to come and like devour his flesh. And she he was like, "Well, I mean, if you're doing this to yourself, then I'm out of here." And um, she left. Um, and that same day, some sailors who had davened in the merit of Rabbi Lazar brought him a gift of new sheets. And so he got new sheets anyway. And when his wife heard that, saw that Hashem was taking care of it anyway, she decided that he might as well she should do it rather than someone else. So you could take that story in a very literal way and argue that, you know, he's Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, he's a great tzaddik. Why is he a great tzaddik? Because he is, you know, afflicting himself physically to deprive any sense of pleasantness of the physical world, right? And you, Without Rebbe himself brought the idea that, that David and Melch fasted in order to become a tzaddik. I mean, you have such ideas. The question is, do you take them in that very literal way and then build a whole philosophy that that's what we should be doing? A philosophy of depriving ourselves. Um, I mean, there are those, and, 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 or do you say no? That, that those, those, those have other considerations involved. It's, it's not necessarily exactly what it looks like. But it... So you, you, it's not like many things in, in, in Jewish thought. You know, those who, those who object to something always argue that it comes from non-Jewish sources. And those who hold of it want to argue that it does come from Jewish sources. And the sources have enough ambiguity that both arguments can be seen to be as reasonable. There are very few things in Judaism that I would say you can conclusively say, oh, that's not Jewish. Like, it, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the range of orthodox approach um, that... Now, it is definitely true that the Baal Shemto was very opposed to these ideas in general. Although he didn't, interestingly, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't object to, 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 to people afflicting themselves physically in all cases, just as a general approach. The famous teaching of the Baal Shemto is that um, you should not f- fight the body, but you should use the body. Okay. Um, but part of that idea of using the body has to come from the idea of clarity. He, the Baal Shem Tov also called the body your enemy. It's like, how can you use your enemy? You have to have that kind of clarity to see it from this other perspective. And so what I want you to realize is that just like the Bainini in chapter 12, it was all about having a certain perception. Even here, that's what it comes down to. It's about perception. If it's a struggle of desire, in a certain sense, even when you win, you've won the battle, lost the war because you've, you're playing the wrong game. You're, doing, you're, 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 you're approaching it as if it's the desire that's the issue. When the altar was trying to say, no, it's the ish, ultimate issue is a lack of awareness. If you are aware of the truth, the desire is not, a, is not an issue. So you have very strong desires for things that are unholy. But when you're unaware of the truth, even the Yetzirah will agree 
that it's wrong. I won't, that doesn't last, it lasts as long as the clarity lasts. But, and you still, right? Again, like that judge who defers to his colleagues, he knows the law because he follows the majority. And, and I, I think that's very important because one of the key hallmarks of, of a Hasidic approach to things is that it's holistic. It brings the whole person along. So even though we're presenting there's fighting, there's conflict in this, but it has to be in such a way that the whole person is, in, is, is coming along the journey. It's not that the person is throwing part of themselves out. Yes? How come in our uh, discussion about the ban of Yudavans and also in the definitions of the Tzadik in Russia, we use the language of the animal soul and godly soul, and now with this second type of ban, we're talking about Yudavans. Because here it's very relevant. In this particular description, it's very relevant, the difference between desire and awareness, in a way that wasn't really as relevant earlier on. Um, but if you, if you if, 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 um, on a simple level, you could learn the Tanya, not make this distinction, but because here he, he goes through the effort of saying the godly soul, um, the godly soul in the brain, which extends into the right side of the heart, the place of the, of the good inclination, that's that, going, emphasizing that one episode of conflict system, because also in chapter nine, you have something similar. He says the abode of the animal soul is in the heart, in the left side where the blood is. And the abode of the divine soul is in the brain and also in the heart. Um, so he's making the sense that the godly soul exists both in the brain and the heart. And here that he uses that term Yitzotov, so based on other sources where it gets into more of that is, I figure it's an important thing to bring out. But if you learn time in a very simple level, you don't have to make that distinction. I think bringing that out helps us understand a little bit better about what's, what this is like in real life, that's why I'm bringing it out. But in terms of the, the, the metaphysics of it, like, it's a whole other question, why he uses which terms where. And I don't always make a big deal about it. Yeah? Just like a clarifying question. So the second type of being um, has a conflict in both the heart and the mind, um, so he doesn't have clarity. Initially. Initially. Right. And that's what he asks of Hashem to bring more clarity so his desires would submit exactly exactly okay so it seems like he starts off as a Russian and then by Hashem's help he becomes a woman so I would say like this um We'll, we'll, in chapter 14, we'll address this issue of being a Bainani and not being a Bainani more. For our purpose right now, I just, people have a certain mode, a certain approach to life. If you do this, so maybe you're not a Bainani. But if this is, the, this is your, your modus operandi, this is how you live, not you just do this, then, then that's something very different. Think about... Um, there are people who are disciplined um, and there are people who, who act disciplined because of a particular circumstance. So for instance, let's say um, you know, a person goes into the military and they really absorb the ethos of being disciplined and getting up a certain time and making the bed, like that whole kind of thing, right? And there are people like that, right? 30 years later, like they're living their life, they're approaching everything with a kind of a, a military discipline mentality to it, right? In a certain sense, that's them because that's the way they operate. 
Whereas another person might be able to do that when they're dealing with a very important issue and they need, and everything needs to be done exactly. They can, they can take that kind of an approach, but it's something that they have to turn on and if they don't, you know, so, so now, yeah, like any of us can do this and I don't say that makes us a bainini. But what if you have a person like, this is how they live their life. This is they so inculcated into their mind. This is how I live. I do not act unless, I don't act from instinct. I live my life in a deliberate way. I make sure that my, my awareness of Hashem and my desires to be Hashem are at least equally compelling as my awareness of the, of, the, of the mundane world and my animalistic desires, right? I, I'm genuinely open to the fact that I need Hashem's help, right? I wait for clarity before I act, right? If that's the mode in which a person lives, I mean, it's not, yeah, if that, then, then, then would you say that they're a Russia? There's something very different, right? Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's clearly a very disciplined and deliberate person who lives that way, right? Okay. But the technique doesn't depend on that, right? Any person could, could, could do this. Right? And Alton will say that later on in chapter 14. Like, you, you can do this. Um, whether that becomes your whole modus operandi is a separate question. So we'll talk more in chapter 14. I know there's a bit of acting as a Baini versus being, truly being a Baini. Okay. Question. The, so really the two judges are the Yetzir, the good inclination and the bad inclination, right? The, the two judges are not the godly soul and the animal soul. Because the, the, the third, what, what do you call him? Uh, uh, the way I said it, that's a proper conclusion. There's a lot more. There's a, there's a whole discussion that the fifth Chabad Rebbe that Rishab has on this issue, which I'm drawing from but oversimplifying. And when you go into that, it's not a, what you said is not 100% true. But because I'm leaving out more complexity, the way I presented it, that's a fair conclusion. But there's, there's, there's other stuff that I've, I've left out to make it, that makes it more complicated. <laughs> Okay, so then what do we take out from this? What I'm saying is that conclusion is fine and you can take out from that, but just don't walk away like that is authoritatively correct, but that is a fair summary of what I've said and what I've said is, a, is, is true, but also an oversimplification. But I mean, that's just the nature of learning. Like we, we can't, sometimes in summarizing something, you say something which is technically inaccurate, but, but true to what you've learned and that's what, that's what you're doing, so it's fine. I just don't want to like vouch for yes and then you like come back five years later. Rabbi Kaufman, you said and then I found and this mimer like, like I know that says in the other mimer the other thing and like yes, but it's a, it's a fair it's a fair summary of what I've said, even though it's not so simple that that's correct. But I mean, in general, we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in wording for wording's sake. It's more important that we understand the idea we're just, we're, we're talking about. And in that sense, you're 100% right, yes. The conflict they feel is the desires that have legitimacy because of the awareness, and then there's this, this deeper, more, more absolute awareness that comes and reconciles the issue. The desires that they feel because of the two awarenesses that they have? Yeah, because remember, if you only have two desires and one awareness, you're not gonna have the problem to begin with, right? That's the Bainini who's Davin doesn't have that issue. The desire comes and fades on its own. Good? Okay.